One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast and radio show that leverages music's power to help us travel back through time to moments in our lives and the stories they contain. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Thomas Lockyer. Thomas is manager of the Museum of the Everglades in Everglades City, Florida. Thomas was born in Madison, Wisconsin, but grew up in the Skokie-Evanston area of Illinois, right outside of Chicago. He graduated from University of Wisconsin-Madison with a B.S and arts and got his master's degree in education from Florida Gulf Coast University. He made his living as a musician from the late 80s until the early 2000s, first as a keyboardist for the band My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, and then as the frontman and songwriter for the Electric Hellfire Club. They toured extensively in the U.S. and recorded five full-length albums. He then put music aside and moved to Key West to start over in 2005 and has now been a museum professional for 17 years. He served as curator at the Key West Shipwreck Treasures Museum and at Historic Pigeon Key. He was then executive director of the History of Diving Museum in Isla Morada before taking on his current role at Museum of the Everglades. He and his wife, who met after he moved to Florida, have a son who just turned 11. Hey there, Thomas. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for driving in. My pleasure. My pleasure. So how many books do you have? Um, between four and five thousand. I haven't. I haven't counted since about forty-two hundred, and it is my as as I like to say, my last remaining vice is buying books, um, and I can't think of it right offhand. But the 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 uh, the Japanese have a term for uh, collecting books that you'll never be able to read. Well, I was going to ask, how many of those would you estimate you have read? Um, parts of, I would say the the majority, but. You know, we love living in a library. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny because when you you have these moments where you think of, of you know, apocalyptic scenarios, you know, whether, if the internet goes yeah, down. Yeah, the, the further we like get that. into the future, the more that makes sense. Yeah, that, that <laughs> the idea that, that, you know, that everybody reads digital books and that's how everybody has access to information. And I'm like, would I be able to fix my car? And I'm like, okay, I have two Chilton manuals in here, um, probably not relevant to the model of car that I have, but I'd be able to fix a car. So um, <laughs> the term is sundoku. Sundoku, sundoku. yes, yes. Well, I, I don't want to get conspiratorial or anything, but when you start thinking about like large language models and artificial intelligence and you know super intelligent and the digital beings and stuff, like what if we we get to a future where there's a a person or technology or force of some kind that can go in and change stuff on the internet, and we don't have paper books, and suddenly everything you Google, like you pull up like the digital version of Pride and Prejudice and it's changed, and we can't tell whether it was changed or not. Well, paper books might become important someday. Th- those of us who grew <laughs> up when when Orwell's 1984 was required reading in high school, and you know the scenario being that they they used to redo all the the photographs and they'd reprint all the books and all these sorts of things. And in a digital age, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to do any of that stuff. And, and I'm, you know, in a in a day and age when People are deciding that, you know, Huckleberry Finn shouldn't be published anymore. 
um, you know, I've got four copies of it. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> well, enough about books. Um, sure. Born in Madison, Wisconsin. Yes, sir. Bio says you grew up in Skokie. Um, yeah, my my parents met as undergrads at the University of Wisconsin, and my sister and I were both born in student housing. And uh, uh, you know, my dad, um, his uh, his his first job out of out of law school was as a, a deputy district attorney, prosecuting uh, protesters of the Vietnam War. Huh. Madison, Wisconsin was a real hotbed of that kind of protest. And my dad finally said, I, I can't do this. Huh. You know, it was really morally against everything that, he, that you know, he believed and just quit his job and, and decided to go do something else. Hmm. Um, so uh, we uh, ended up moving to uh, the Chicago area. And That's he, where Skokie is. Yeah, it's like he, a North Chicago suburbish yeah, thing. Yeah, well, um, yeah, North Chicago. Both both Evanston and Skokie they border each other, and um, you know Skokie, of course, is is known. It's a, it's got a very very um, high Jewish population. When the, the, the there was a, a TV movie about the Nazis deciding that that's where they wanted to march, um, hmm. but. Uh, yeah, I started school around the time that uh, that busing, you know, the the, the forced integration of of uh, public schools was starting in the in the uh, um, mid to late sixties. Hmm. So, so how would you describe the musical background of your childhood? Like, what was being played around you? What were you being exposed to? What were you locking onto first? Um, my parents really didn't like a lot of popular music. I think that they had two. Rock and roll albums. They had a, a a Buddy Holly record and a Beatles record, but it was classical music that was mainly played in the house. Um, but but a variety of stuff. Um, the, the, you know, the, one moment my dad would be you know jamming out to operas, but uh, and then my mom would be putting on the Ali Akbar Khan, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> string music. It's so um, a, a great variety, I guess w- what I'd say, but. You know, my parents had season tickets to the Lyric Opera in Chicago. I saw my first opera. I went to see Bizet's Carmen when I, when I was six years old. So um, I'm definitely exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. If I ask you to try to recall the earliest musical memory you can find that has a musical element, you know, of some kind, what pops into your head? <sighs> Probably... Um, Kindergarten, when I was in Skokie, there was a, a guy who came in and, and played songs. His name was Mr. Burrainy. And, um, and and I know this because in I wasn't just moving um, over 4,000 books. I was moving 10 crates of um, vinyl albums. And I still have my Mr. Burrainy record. Huh. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, among all my stuff, I, you know, I still have kids' books and I still have kids' records. Huh. Um, I, I find a tremendous amount of value in things that that, that were created for children, but at the same time, um, you know, speak to us as adults in different ways. So. And you had that feeling inside yourself long before you became involved with museums. I did. So there's a, probably a connection. There. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that that you know, our lives are a golden thread that weave through a lot of. Uh, different scenarios and fabrics. What was the first band or musician that got your attention as a young individual? I, I, I liked the Beatles, 
But the first one that really changed me was Kiss. Um, and Kiss was the band that, that made me all of a sudden realize that, um, you know, I didn't want to be a paleontologist or a marine biologist when I grew up. I wanted to be a rock star. Hmm. And the, I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, somewhere right around in there. And, um, you know, it, it, it was something that, uh, that stayed with me. And it's funny because, you know, I look, I look back on everything that, 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 um, that, that Kiss is, Kiss was, and, you know, the, the, the people that I was friends with during that time. And, and I'm not, I'm not verbalizing this right, but, um, no, it was, you know, Kiss wasn't just a a band. It was the it was the whole, uh-huh. you know, as they say, the whole enchilada. It was the, the you know the 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 look, the the way of acting, the way of moving, the the uh, you know the the way it affected the people around you. And I think that I I loved the fact that people were disgusted by Kiss. I you know that was one of the things that I enjoyed is that they didn't get it, but it was scary and it was cool and it was. You know, all these different things. Speaking of being disgusted by Kiss, how were your folks with you getting into Kiss as the opera lovers that they were? My my parents were fine with it. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. My my parents really, um, you know, gave us a lot of room to be um, who and what we were going to be. And, and I remember I had a Kiss biography that, that – I was reading in class that I had hidden in one of my books and I got confiscated by a teacher. And and the teacher lost his mind not just because it was Kiss but because there um, – you know, it was one of these newsstand uh, salacious uh, biographies that had, uh, you know, sexual scenes and probably curse words in it and those sorts of things, probably written by some editor of Cream magazine or something like that. And the, he said, if you want this book back, your parents are going to have to get it. And my dad was so pissed that this guy took my book. Ah. Um, you know, and, and you know, when the teacher tried to say something about the, the content of the book, um, you know, again, it, it comes back when I talk about the, this guy who was – I grew up in a house where, um, you know, the only real – God was the Constitution. You know, this was a guy who was a a lawyer and and you know really saw, uh, the, you know the 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 path to what being a true American was as as you know following that and and um, you know education that sort of enlightenment and and the whole idea that somebody would take his kid's book hmm. and it was only up to him whether the, you know as a kid I was allowed to read books that had those kind of words in it how many times did you dress up as a kiss figure for halloween and which one was it so i didn't what <laughs> so this is the this is the funny thing um and and you know it speaks about me in some way probably <sighs> On on one hand, well, that's kind of interesting and it's like, gosh, this kid had an ego. I never imagined myself as Ace Fraley or something like that. I wanted to be the guy that stepped in when one of those people quit or died or something like that. So I always saw myself as my own sort of character. Hmm. Um, And, 
you know, and Halloween for me um, was, again, it was something that, that we, I liked the spooky aspects of it. And, and while there were, there were certainly sort of scary, spooky aspects of a band like Kiss, they weren't the same sort of like horror movie scary that I associated with with Halloween, and they they were oil and water to me. So you didn't like dress up like a rock star on on Halloween. You dressed up like a you know creature of the Black Lagoon or something really creepy. Understood. So. I thought I was going to nail you on that one, but nope. I didn't. Okay, well let's get to your first song. Uh, this is the song by Kraftwerk. Yes. What's how do you pronounce it? I think it's um, <laughs> Cometan Melody. Okay. Um, Two, <laughs> um, and it, you know what the 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 meaning of that is. I'm I'm not exactly sure. My my German's not as good as my French, which is not that good. But uh, it was a it was a song that I heard for the first time in Paris, and as a um, um, not quite sophomore in. High school. I went on a uh, an exchange trip to France, and um, you know I raised money for this this trip by doing a paper route, getting up at the crack of dawn every morning, and and you know wanted to go to France. And I was failing French, um, but was bound and determined that uh, that I was going to go on this trip and, and experience world travel, everything like that. Which of course my parents were very much encouraging me to do. And, um, you know, I stayed with a family for two weeks and the family what, – what the program was developed around this idea that you would go to school with French children, you know, and experience what their school was like and um, these sorts of things. And they thought that was the most ridiculous waste of time for somebody from the United States visiting France, visiting Paris. What do you want to sit in a school all day for? Don't you want to go to the Louvre? Don't you want to see the Eiffel Tower? And I'm like, well, of course I do. But and they said, well, we're gonna we're gonna show you how to do that. And the father was a taxi driver. And the 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 first day that I was there, they took me out and they showed me how to use the the uh, the city bus and the and the metro system. And I had never I you know I grew up in the Chicago area and as kids. We did take the L train to the the Cubs game, which was a straight shot. You didn't have to, you know, change trains or get on a bus or anything like that. Um, but the first time that I really did any of this sort of stuff by myself was in a, a foreign city where I had a questionable command of the of the language. <laughs> and I remember being on the, you know, the metro was fine on the on the way back to the house and the, and. Uh, got on the bus and I was like, "Wow, all this stuff looks exactly the same." And I realized that I was, you know, I was doomed unless I could talk to this bus driver. And I, I thought over and over again in, in my head, asking him. Could and you're you? like 14. Yeah, like yeah, that. 14, 15, right in there. And walking up and showing him on a map, I'm like, "Could you please tell me when we are right here?" And he said, "Oh, sure, no problem." And, and, you know, when we got there, he stopped, rang the bell and very dramatically said, <laughs> you know, Port Orion, you know, or whatever it was. And, and from there on, I was like, wow, I can actually do this. But, yeah, so I, I spent all this time traveling around uh, the city of Paris by myself. You know, I'd, I'd go out in the morning with the, uh, the father in the taxi and say, where do you want to start today? And, and all these different spots. So by the time I got back with the touring group, 
you know, I was a, a, you know, I was a tour guide. I was a seasoned professional in this whole thing. But one of the cool experiences I had with, uh, with, with the, the, uh, the young men from the family is they, want, of course, wanted me to meet all their friends. Their friends wanted to meet the Americans. And they had, you know, the, these friends who were a couple who had their, their own apartment. And, um, you know, and they wanted to meet – to me, I have no idea what their names were, but they were just, you know, the bohemian couple yeah, that yeah, had yeah, this yeah. sort of loft apartment. They said, oh, we want you to hear a, a, a kind of music that we enjoy very much. And they put on this record. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And it was all electronic. And it was um, it was Autobahn by, by Kraftwerk. And, you know, and – you know, the whole first side of, of Autobahn just kind of goes on and goes through all these different phases. But the, the, um, the this song is one of the more melodic ones from, from side B. And I just remember that this was this amazing kind of music. And it was something that, that I was introduced to in a foreign country. And I, I looked for the record for probably two years after that. And, and my mistake being that I thought the band's name was Autobahn. Um, <laughs> and... But people don't realize what it was like, you know, back late 70s, early say, 80s. That would have been like 79, 80s. Yeah, that you walk then. into a record store and you have a record called Autobahn or by a band called Autobahn and people say, you know, what are you talking about? You know, they didn't have import uh-huh. records at a lot of places. You couldn't just Google something. It was, uh, you know, and the, and then when I finally just stumbled on it one day, it was inc- it was an incredible experience. But uh, paint the scene of like what their little apartment was like. Were there any like uh, is there any sweet smelling smoke in the air? No, nothing France like France in the late seventies. Nothing no? like that. But we were sitting on the floor. There we we were on cushions on the floor, so it definitely had this this sort of like hippie vibe. And the, and you know, I probably have have conflated some memories, but I kind of picture them as these sort of beatniks. And, um, you know, asking me about things, but also v- being very interested in, in exposing me to, to the music that, that, that they thought was very important, important, you know, and, and you know, and it, it turned out to be très important to me as well. We will uh, we'll talk about the importance of it after we listen to it. Um, Komen. It translates to Comet Tune. Comet Tune. There you go. It translates to. It's called. Say it here. I'm gonna let you say it. And then, how did you say Comment, it? Commenten melody two two by by Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk from the 1974 album Audubon. It's Thomas Lockyer's first song this week's episode of Three Song Stories. I'm hypnotized. <laughs> that is transfixing. It it's an incredible piece, and I you know one of the things that I, that I like about that particular song is people tend to say, oh, well, you know, electronic music, it's it's so cold and, you know, unemotional. That's an emotional song. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really, you you get this sense of, of just, you know, there's pure joy in there. And, you know, and I, I, I remember that. I remember thinking, what is this? What's making this sound? And, you know, and it was a defining moment for me because electronic music, you know, became a, a, a focal point for, you know, many years of my life. Um, uh, before we get to the talking about making it, how did it change your musical tastes? Did you – well, real quick before we answer that, did they know who Kiss was? I needed to know. Were they were, – did you tell them, I, I'm into this band called Kiss? Did they know who that was? You know, I – at that time – 
I had I had gone past Kiss. Um, you know, by that time, I had gone from Kiss. Um, you know, graduated into the Ramones and and Sex Pistols and and these sorts of things. And you know, th- at the time when punk rock w- was starting, and I mean, it was again one of those things where maybe like three bands records came over, from, you know, across the pond and, and into record stores. But if you were reading the magazines like Cream and Trouser Press and everything like that, um, new wave and, and punk rock were very much intermingled. And with New Wave, um, the synthesizer was a, a, a predominating instrument. So a lot of the, the the bands that I was I was you know starting to get into, um, you know, right after that time, listening to to Kraftwerk and then discovering uh, Gary Newman, uh, Devo, you know, those sorts of bands that suddenly this was this was a thing, and and you know, moving on from there to the bands that that. Um, you know, dare I say, we're a little more serious about it, like orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I saw that band when uh, when I was seventeen. I got a fake ID, and you only had to be eighteen in Wisconsin. But but uh, um, you know, I graduated from high school early, and I was like, you know, out on the town and in, in uh, downtown Madison, and I could go to a punk rock new wave nightclub. And I saw all these different bands in this really, really small club because it was the only place in Madison for them to play. And, you know, seeing a band like like OMD. But, you know, um, I, I talk about how in the same week I saw Black Flag play with, you know, Henry Rollins fronting Black Flag on the Damage Tour on the very first record that they recorded with him. But then I saw OMD that, that, that same week. And, I mean – you know, Black Flag with Rollins was like a, a wild animal on stage. You know, the, like the Tasmanian Devil as a as a punk rock band. But OMD, you know, even though it was two guys with synth- synthesizers, the power of the music was greater. That that there was something about the, the each bass hit and everything like that was hitting you in the solar plexus, and it was just like. You know, it was very physical, and it was just this this powerful thumping. And and again, when you talk about the hypnotic aspect of it, and the and the the ability of that music to carry you to different places, and I I, I started fantasizing around then about this idea of like, well, gosh, if you could like, you know, blend the ferocity of of you know Black Flag style punk rock with the just this this stark, cold, you know, brutal purity of, of electronic sound and put them both together, uh, you know, that would be the ultimate kind of music. And, and you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily start trying to do exactly that. Part of it being that at that time, synthesizers were profoundly expensive. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I started uh, – as a 17-year-old, I started buying – um, old analog synthesizers that people were discarding because suddenly digital was out there and everybody wanted the fancy digital ones. Um, and, you know, those old... Uh, what was your first synthesizer? Do you my remember? first um, is a... Uh, um, it may have been a Sequential Circuits Pro 1, but I think it was a, a um, micro Moog. It was a Moog... 
Um, bought it at the buy sell shop in in Madison. I remember it now, and and it was hard to make them make music. You know, you had to actually twiddle an awful lot of knobs and flip an awful lot of switches to get it to do something um, that that sounded like you know sound because everything could be just you know outer space noise. Yeah, yeah. How long between when you got your first synthesizer and when you were either starting or in your first band? I was already in my first band. Um, what were I, you doing prior to that? Uh, what kind of music? Yeah, or no, what kind of what were you making? Were you a singer? Were you a? Um, I was playing guitar. And, oh, guitar. And, okay. Yeah, yeah. I I, I played guitar, um, but even you know my earliest um, incarnation as a, as a guitar player, I was all about the effects. You know, I um, I bought a Morley Wah Wah Fuzz pedal. Probably that you know two days after I got my first guitar, and you know was playing God of Thunder by Kiss, trying to like you know make it wah and fuzz as much as I possibly could with this you know unwieldy pedal effect. Um, but uh, yeah, it just it, you know it, it kind of went from there though that uh, I you know I was playing playing in, in in hardcore bands, but really interested in integrating an electronic element. Um, and were the hardcore bands you were playing with um, open to that or resistant no, to that? No, no, no. There was no way. They're like that. they were like you're not hardcore enough, Thomas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there, there's a, that's the story of my life, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I um, I I definitely with the with the the first hardcore band that I had. Um, I mean, we've. We did really well, really fast. I mean, I, I want to say our fourth gig was opening for the Exploited, hmm. um, and you know, and and I, I looking back, I mean, never did any recordings, and, and um, what was it called? It was called Westworld. Oh. After the, uh, the after the, the HBO show, after the Yul Brenner film, <laughs> <laughs> long before there was, uh, of course, um, and but. Uh, yeah, and it was you know I had this whole theory about it about you know b- being a punk rock kid about how you know society was tr- was trying to turn us all into robots and and um, you know in, in Westworld the uh, the robots revolt and as punk rock kids we were you know revolting against being forced to be robots. When so. did you first record music? When was your first experience in a studio of some kind? First re- recording in in a for real studio. Um, I um I joined a band called Sleep Chamber in Boston and which was kind of this sort of experimental um music and and you know but electronic industrial as they say and I, and um you know I actually moved to Boston to be in the band and play in the band and and um uh, How old were you at this point? I was um Twenty. Okay. And um, the, I, I think that we recorded a four-song EP, hmm. um, and that was just you know it was it was a misstep for me you know the uh, but um, was that before or after college? Because you did squeeze some college in there. I did squeeze college in, but that was one of those um, the, 
my sister used to joke. She's like, "Oh, my brother's on the ten-year plan." Because it took I, me sixteen years. Okay, so, so uh, um, I think it took me just over six. But I would withdraw for semesters and just say I can't do this anymore. I went to four schools and dropped out of FGCU twice before I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> I just I kept changing my major. I I, I think I started as a, as an art major and then um, and I switched it over to to film. And then I became a medieval studies major and then I dropped out. And, um, you know, when I came back, I, I, I finished as an art major, but I had dabbled in so many different things that um, when I was looking at how I could complete my degree and I was looking, there was a very, very odd version of, of the art degree, you know, which is normally a, a Bachelor of Arts in Art. And, and I'm like, Bachelor of Science in mm. Art. Um, which required a little more theory, a little more technical drawing. You know, I'm, I'm over there with the, the architecture guys and, you know, I, whatever my hair looked like at that time, if I had a mohawk or, you know, spiked uh, Bauhaus hair or something like that. But definitely the guy that did, that, that did not look like I belonged in the uh, architectural drawing class. But I, I, I got enough of that stuff in there that I, that I have a, a Bachelor of Science in art. Hmm. Um, so how did you end up getting hooked up with the, the Chicago band, uh, Thrill Kill Cult? Because um, <laughs> you played keyboard for them I did. during I, their live shows. Is that, uh, that's how I saw it written. Yeah. I mean, so the, um, the, the story of that is that, that I had a two-man electronic band my, um, called Slave State with my buddy – Boris Dragos and and you know this is when all the wax track stuff was was starting to happen. Everything's going really crazy, and there's there are the, all these cool bands and you know and wax tracks is a record label, right? Record label right. out of Chicago that really was you know uh, uh, you know pivotal in moving the uh, electronic dance genre forward, but. Um, but not when I say electronic dance, not like Depeche Mode. We're talking like you know really aggressive sound, noisy sound. Um, kind of like what you were describing back when you were still. Yeah, a exactly. You right. start hearing some of these bands that are that, that are that are doing this actual stuff, and um, it was you know it was an exciting time. And I finished school, and I looked at my buddy Boris, and I'm like, we need to move to Chicago, and we're we're going to go there, and we're going to play shows, and we're going to get signed to Wax Tracks. And um, so we moved to Chicago and I did a bunch of different things. Um, I tried working at Guitar Center um, and, and that was an absolute misery. Um, you know, just <laughs> suffice it to say that, that you know, we opened a new store. There was one of these guys, a hotshot training guy from California who came out and was basically what his job was to say, I know that all you guys are in bands. I'm here to tell you right now, your band sucks and you might as well quit. Your future is in selling guitars. You know, you may think that you're selling guitars so that your band can, can uh, uh, you know, move to the next level or, or whatever, that's never going to happen. Now, the funniest thing is that, that I, I quit telling that guy I can't do this anymore. Next time I saw him was when he was pulling the ladder out for me to climb the ladder and sign the wall of, of, of that same guitar center. So it was, it was, it, that was kind of a cool moment for me. Huh. Um, but yeah, the, the, how did I get involved with my life with the Thrill Kill Cult? Um, 
Well, I was a bouncer at a bar uh, on Wells Street called Exit. And Exit is kind of a, a legendary brand in, in Chicago. I, I don't think that there's still a, a, a club under that name, but they definitely sell the back patches and everything like that. And I mean, there are plenty of Facebook pages of former Exit employees and these sorts of things. But there were two guys um, that used to come in from one of the Wax Tracks bands that, that were always drunk out of their minds. And the guy who managed the exit tapped me on the shoulder and he said, if you ever see them and they, you know, are at that point that they're at right now where they can't walk, he said, there's a card behind the bar of where you need to send them. Go and get money from the bartender, pay for the cab and and tell the cab driver to take them to that address. Now, um, those guys ended up being my life of the thrill kill cult. And, um, you know, so I ended up being a guy who helped them get from the, the bar that they got too drunk at to the, the You were the, their, their fixer. Well, you know, the, but the thing is that Chicago, Chicago's an interesting place in that way and particularly that, that sort of underground um, club culture that people took care of each other sure. in, the, in that way. And um, but one of those guys and I were were sitting drinking at the same bar and one of our nights off and the, and the guy said, um, "Oh, you know, you know, how was your day?" and uh, or something along those lines. And I said, "Actually, I had a pretty crappy day because I was doing blah 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 with my keyboard and I lost absolutely everything that was on there." And he said, "You play a keyboard?" And you know, I was like a. You know, I just looked like a, a thug. You know, I had a shaved head and, and um, just, you know, I was a bouncer. And, um, and, and I said, yeah, I play a keyboard. He said, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you want to be our keyboard player? And I said, keyboard player? You mean your keyboard tech? He goes, no, we're about to go on tour. Well, I want someone like that looks like you to be our keyboard player. So I <laughs> you it, got hired for your uh, your the impression the jo- you made from a distance. It's the Johnny Bravo story, <laughs> yeah. you know, that I fit I fit the suit. Um, you know, I played keyboard not that incredibly well, but well enough that he could say, you know, press this button, that button, load this here, th- there, and everything like that. And yeah, I played with the band for like for like three years. Um, no, I, I didn't do anything in the studio besides um, singing along, but I, but I worked with Buzz McCoy, only real true musical genius that, I, that, that I've ever met and worked with in, in my life. Um, just an amazing musician, uh, taught me an incredible amount. But, uh, but yeah, he and I worked t- together on, on a bunch of the music. But in the studio, it was really, you know, that was press a button and let all the all the stuff play onto the onto the tape. So. But then you you had a band that you were the you, you did you start the next band? I did because yeah, like, I for me had I, you got you your know, chops up enough uh, that you were I, you were I, you were a real I keyboard did. player. I, well, I learned you know I don't think that I was ever a real keyboard player. When people <laughs> say, "Are you a musician?" I say, "Well, I play a bunch of of musical instruments very poorly." And the cool thing about electronic music is you don't have to be that good. Right. There are people who are absolutely virtuosic, but but when you start working with sequencers, you can play something very slowly and you know program it in and then speed it up and it sounds like yeah. you know Mozart. And I got really really good at that. Yeah, and started, you got good at the technology and technique of the, of the synthesizer. Started writing music and and honestly, I, I started my own band because I. 
um, I was watching these other people that, that I was sharing the stage with who could get really, really drunk and not have to be that responsible for how, you know, able they were to play their instrument, like the, the singer who was just like rolling around on the floor there. And, and I said, I want his job. Um, so, so you I, created a band so you could have it. I exactly. That's exactly what I did. And you and that was uh, um, uh, Electric Hellfire Club. It was. Yes. And you did that for like a decade. I did. I did. Wow. And you guys recorded albums in the whole nine yards. We did. We did all that stuff. And and you know for for about um, eight of those eleven years, that was my only job. So. Huh. And you traveled overseas. We you did. Recorded overseas. We recorded I've overseas. Read up on you. We we had a we <laughs> we had a couple. Um, abortive uh, the, the European tour situations. The uh, the the first time that we w- went and recorded overseas, we were supposed to uh, do a series of festivals with the with the uh, um, the metal band Venom. Um, their drummer was actually producing our record, and um, the band broke up while we were there, um, or maybe right before we we got there. We we were never really sure. But um, it was a fascinating experience. Um, the studio was absolutely horrible. Um, the, the, the gear was just absolute junk and we did not have a finished product by the time that, that you know, we completed the, the time that we were there. And they wouldn't let us take the tapes um, to work on them there. And, and the funny thing was is that we stayed in a village of 21 people called Hallwick. And, you know, we had a little r- rental house that, that we stayed in and there was one pub in this village of, of 21 people. So we were their pet rock band for, for you know, the summer. And um, it's, you know, we get to be friends with all the people that hang out at the, at the pub and everything like that. And one day um, I got a phone call from, from England and – um, it's Ollie, the guy that runs the pub, and he says, Thomas, I've got someone here that wants to speak to you. And, and the, he puts someone on the phone and he says, Thomas, it's Ray. And Ray is the, the, the head of this motorcycle gang. I hear you got a problem with your tapes. And I, I said, well, yeah, they won't give me. What do they look like? And long story short, those tapes showed up in the mail. Wow. So I don't know exactly who did what, how they, they made Might it Might be happen. better you don't know. Absolutely. It's one of those <laughs> things where, you know what, I'm just not going to ask the questions. But, but and, the, and, you know, these are our quarter-inch master tapes and there were four of them. So it was a, it was a sizable package huh. that, that arrived from England. But we did that. We remixed it uh, the best we could. It's definitely the album that I'm, I'm least proud of. But at the same time, it's the, the record that's got the best stories behind it. Well, let's uh, – <laughs> Uh, well, let's do your second song, and then we'll figure out how you transmuted uh, rock and roll lifestyle into living in South Florida, managing awesome. a small town museum. Um, second song is uh, "Murderous." Yep, by Nitzareb. What's the story, or would you like to listen? Well, the, you know, the, I mentioned um, that I had this this band, Slave State, with my buddy Boris, and. and Boris and I were were guys who had transcended the punk rock scene and, you know, wandered around in, you know, leather pants and and shaved heads and everything like that and and loved electronic music. And Nitzareb was a band of guys with shaved heads and leather pants who played electronic music and they, and just really did this incredible aggressive music that 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 we just loved and you know it was a, it was a staple in all the the really heavy techno clubs at the time 
Um, and the, and I just I, I love this song. I love it lyrically. I love the composition of it. It's a remarkable song. Um, why'd you pick this one in particular? Just the, the, this. Honestly, the, the, I picked this one because of the lyrics and the and. It's one of those things where you're like, wow, it's raw, it's aggressive, it's you know, it's it's sparse, it's electronic, it's cold, but the but lyrically, it's so positive, you know, and it's talking about lift up your hearts, shout golden shouts, and, and you know, there's this this feeling of it where it's 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 hopeful, it's joyful, you know, I'm, I'm, there's that golden thread weaving through when music really speaks to me. There's a there's a level of of joy and positivity to it that that you know that that speaks loudly to my heart. Let's listen to it. Murderous by Nitzer Ebb from the 1987 album That Total Age. This is Thomas Locke, your second song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. This is Biography Through Music. When was the last time you listened to that? Um, it had been a while but when I started looking for what my songs would be. I, I went back through and I'm like, no, this one, this one. Um, so it's been probably a week, but prior to that, it it may have been 10 years. Huh. Uh, so like I said before, we got to the song. So uh, pivot from uh, rock and roll, electronic music, industrial music, recording in Sweden to I'm going to go move to the Keys. So that's where you went. <laughs> I did. Um, well, remember I said that thing about how I wanted the job of the guy that was rolling around on the, on the stage drunk? Yeah. I became that guy. Yeah. And, um, and, and then some. And, you know, by the time we recorded our, our last album, by the time I stopped drinking, I, I was one of those people that had to drink two fingers of whiskey and with an ice cube to stop shaking when I, when I woke up in the morning. Um, and I was crashing cars and I was doing all this sort of stuff. And I was in, um, uh, literally in, in, you know, court ordered therapy for harm reduction, those sorts of things. And at some point I realized I might have to stop doing this. And, and, you know, and I had myself convinced that that was like, you know, one of my last remaining joys in life was, was drinking and, you know, doing all this sorts of stuff. And I couldn't do any of these creative things if I, if I had to stop that. And I ended up, I, I went into a treatment facility to look better to a judge. Um, I, you know, 100% admit that. And, and the judge knew that that's why I was there. But, um, but I went in for 90 days and at about 60 days, I, I started to realize that I probably can't ever drink again. And um, I came out and I, I lasted about two months before I decided that I was cured and, and I would try it again. And, and, and I, you know, got arrested again and, and uh, did all those sorts of things. I mean, you, you know, that uh, <laughs> the, the Who song where, where he says, I woke up in a Soho doorway where a policeman knew my name said you can go sleep at home tonight if you can get up and walk away. Literally had that happen to me. Um, literally been that guy. And, and um, you know, my second stab at, uh, at, at sobriety was, um, you know, it's funny because any, anybody who's gone through a 12-step program and, and does those sorts of things know that they say, well, geographic relocation will not help you. 
Um, it's what I needed. I lived in Wisconsin. I lived across the street from the liquor store next door to my favorite bar. Um, and everybody that I knew wanted me to, to have a drink with them. Everybody I know that was from Wisconsin had a similar, like, I lived across the street from. Is that just Wisconsin? And- it actually <laughs> has the most bars per capita. Okay, there you um, go. And, and I actually um, – when the band was based in Kenosha, which had the most bars per capita of any uh, w- Wisconsin city. So it's, you know, I you could say I came by it naturally. But long story short, um, I was trying to stay sober. And I, um, you know, I I had traveled all over the place. I had tried to get myself, you know, in line with with you know, 12 step programs, but, but admittedly I had never been to a meeting where I didn't want to punch people in the throat, um, with one exception. And that was when I was in the Florida Keys. And when I was down there, um, visiting friends, the, the people at those meetings had been through the same things that I'd been through and, and, you know, they seemed to get it. And it was suggested that, well, maybe you should go get and stay sober in the Florida Keys, which sounds like the stupidest suggestion in the whole world. But I, I will say for anybody who's struggling, anywhere where there is a, you know, a, a party vibe like Key West or something like that, there is an equal and opposite community of people who have been there, done that and had enough and are more than willing to reach out and give you a hand. And that's, you know, that's what saved my life uh, is people like that. You know, strangers who were willing to um, you know, tolerate me and and you know the the stuff that was coming out of my mouth and and uh, suggest that that maybe when I had double digit sobriety I could I could you know start making those sorts of statements. But you know I've got I've got eighteen years now, so uh, it, it worked. How um how easy was it to move to the Keys in two thousand five? I know every year it gets a little harder to move to the Keys. You know I read a book called Quit Your Job and Move to Key West. Um, and, and, and I did, um, the author of that book, David Sloan, um, tells me that I'm his, his, uh, uh, you know, greatest success story and my, his greatest testimonial. Um, I knew what I was getting into. I knew I was going to have to have at least two jobs in order to, uh, uh, to, to live there. Um, but I was honestly, I had this whole idea that I was going to change my life. I was going to scuba dive, learn to be a treasure diver, do all this sort of stuff. And, and. You know, I got a job at the the Borders bookstore because that was something that I'd done, and and um, I were you quick... still like rocking the vibe? Were you still like? Oh like... yeah, absolutely, yeah, okay. so... absolutely. I had to, I had hair down past my shoulders that that was um, th- that was dyed fire engine red, and you know, just uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the 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 whole nine, um, and yeah, I wasn't you know, I I was keeping one foot in the game, and I've. While I wanted to be sober, I wanted to continue doing music, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'll just do this like sort of rock and roll with a tiki vibe, and you know, call it the Mysterious Islanders or something like that." But, uh, um, but I, I part of the reason that I went to Key West is because I needed to go somewhere where nobody knew who I was, and I wasn't, you know, constantly running into people that are like, "Oh, aren't you the guy that?" And, yeah. and you know, and and that really, really worked for me, but. Uh, my my job at, at at the Borders Bookstore was it was destroyed by Hurricane Wilma in 2005. Um, the the store was flooded, and I had to find a new job. I had quit my job and moved to Key West and had all my stuff there and had rent to pay and everything like that, and I needed a new job. 
and and the first job that I was able to find after the dust settled was um, taking tickets for seven dollars an hour at a pirate museum, and with my um, one foot in the game vibe. I could also dress as a pirate and meet ah. and, and uh, meet the All Disney ship. All you do is throw a pi- <laughs> throw a parrot on your shoulder and you were in. I eye patch. It was it, and I I literally put the eye patch on. Um, so yeah, I did that, and they they had me stand there and sell pictures in front of the authentic pirate flag with the authentic pirate, which was me. Um, so <laughs> yeah, and and I mean having having lived the life of of. You know, touring around the country with with eight guys stuffed in a stinky van, um, it's not that far removed from from the pirate life of you know sailing the ship from port to port and you know drinking their booze and and. and uh, what would your bandmates have thought if they had seen a picture of some family that had come down from Wisconsin to take a picture of you dressed as a pirate? Oh, they did. Oh, um, and and and, and, I, and and that was really when when all the social media stuff was first. Started. Yeah, that would have been like early um, mid two thousands. MySpace. Yeah, and and yeah. um, you know, and and of course, I've got one guy, and and understand that that the band, I was the the front man and the 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 you know, the writer of all the music and everything like that. And there were people that relied on me. This was what they did. And they, they were like, you know, when's Thomas going to get his act together so we can go back to doing this? And but meanwhile, they're all like bad mouthing me behind my back and on social media, even back at this time. And one guy's sending me a message saying, look, you know, so-and-so picture posted a picture of you as a pirate, you know, and, and you know, um, with some snarky comment about it and, Stuff like that. And, and, you know, that stuff was, you know, my my journey is about me coming to terms with my ego, you know. And I know that sounds very like, you know, I've, I've, I've read too many, you know, Stephen Covey books or something like that. But but it's it's all about that. And and. Um, yeah, I mean, stuff like that made me mad, broke my heart, did this and did that. And, and like I said, you know, I certainly knew people, you know, who were helping me stay sober who were saying, what people think about you is none of your business. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm. What people think about me is how I made my living, mm. you know. And and it just it, – it eventually was something that, that – you know, I, I started shifting away from and, and really focusing on, on other stuff. Well, what what do you like to do? Um, and honestly, I didn't know. Um, when I realized, and I, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, name myself as, as my alter ego, but I could answer any question of what, what so-and-so would like, what his favorite food was, everything like that. I had no idea. Um, who Thomas Lockyer really was because I had been wearing this monster costume for a decade and I hadn't realized it. And, and I was slowly starting to peel off this, this, this monster costume. And I'd always enjoyed history. And even when I was in the band, you know, when I was in Thrill Kill Cult, we were in, in uh, San Antonio four different times and I had never seen the Alamo and I was really angry about that. So when I had my own band, I was like, we are going to have – you know, cultural excursions. If we're going to San Antonio, I'm going to see the darn Alamo. And, and I'm going to, even if I have to schedule a day off for us to do it, we did tons of stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's like I said, that there was a point in, in my academic career where I wanted to be a medieval studies major. 
um, history was always a thing. It was definitely something that 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 spoke to me. And the more I got involved with museums, I could indulge that passion in a new way. And I started realizing, well, maybe that's who I really am. And now you are the manager of the Museum of the Everglades in Everglades City. Yes, and you sir. are him. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, You've you been know, there for what, six years? Not quite seven years. So creeping up on seven years. I've uh, been a museum professional. If you if you start me when I was started With the taking, ticket taker, t- ticket taker, but you know I've pirate I've, actor, pirate actor, done all those things. But I've been everything from ticket taker to executive director, and you know the executive director thing was like, ooh, this is too high. You know, it, it was more about shaking hands and getting people to donate money to the, the nonprofit Understood, museum yeah. than it was about uh, doing historical research and. and you know, creating exhibits, but museum work was, it's, it's funny when, even when I was at the pirate museum, I, I suddenly started to see where my very unique skill set all came together where, um, you know, the uh, pirate museum was owned by Pat Croce, you know, who used to own the Philadelphia 76ers and, and, you know, really, really cool guy. Um, but, you know, Pat would come down from from Philadelphia, and everybody would scramble around saying, "Oh my gosh, the you know the 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 huge pirate flag is torn. What are we going to do?" And I'm like, "Would you like me to take it home and sew it?" They're like, "You know how to sew?" And I'm like, "Who used to sew up the leather pants in the van between the shows?" You know, so little skills like that, or that they had, um, you know, an animatronic thing in the in the. Uh, uh, in the museum where, you know, a, a door would open and a pirate would talk to you and, and it stopped working. Pat's going to be so angry that that's not working. I'm like, dude, it's like a probably just a, a $2 momentary switch from Radio Shack. And they're like, if you can f- fix that for $2, I'll give you a $20 raise. And I got the $20 raise. Huh. You know, well, not $20 raise, but a $20 bonus. bonus. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I realized, wow, all this useless stuff that I accumulated, all this experience – all works really well together. My art degree, you know, the, um, you know, basic electronics repair, um, sewing up pirate flags and leather pants, those sorts of things. And um, so as a museum professional, you wear a lot of hats. And that was something that I was really, really well accustomed to. And, and yeah, so by, by this point now, but, um, almost 20 years in the, in the museum business, it fits like a glove. So uh, this is not a perfect segue, but it's close. Speaking of pirates, let's do your third song. Okay, so, <laughs> so oh, it, I just <laughs> said to Jared, we're talking about pirates. I bet Mike segues into the third song. <laughs> now, oh, um, Richard, stop merging with my brain. <laughs> um, one of the museums that I worked at in Key West was the Key West Shipwreck Treasures Museum. And people say, oh, that's the Pirate Museum. The Pirate Museum actually moved to St. Augustine. And what people think are pirates at the um, the Shipwreck Museum are actually 19th century records. Um, you know, it's a, it's a different century, but they kind of wear scrubby clothes and things like that. And, and we dressed in period costume. Uh, it's where I got the mustache. And I wore this mustache as a, a 19th century record. In front curly of the, handlebar mustache yeah, curly for the handlebar. folks who aren't watching him. <laughs> yes. Um, and it just it, – it became a part of who I was. And when I tried to stop doing it, my wife's like, can you grow the mustache back please? 
you know, so it's it's there. It's something that that I got at that that time. And we weren't really pirates, but people thought we were pirates at that place. But um, you know, and and before I've I've you know start the song, I have to I, I have to tell that 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 epiphany moment. So I'm you gotta imagine that I'm I'm dressed in kind of scrubby clothes and a straw hat with a big feather in it with a handlebar mustache and I'm sta- literally standing on a soapbox talking about history, regaling people off cruise ships and things like that from you know in, in down in Mallory Square in Key West and you know being really dramatic and and I'm like wow this rock star thing is really translating into sharing history <laughs> with 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 all these people the many here. Faces of Thomas Lockyer. Yeah, and and so then I I finish my little. I get down off the, the soapbox and these two little kids who are standing with their parents watching this thing come running up to me and they throw their arms around me and they're, they're hugging my legs and they know my name. They're saying, Thomas, Thomas, we're so happy to see you. And the parents come up and they're like, Thomas, and I'm, I have no idea who these people are. And, I'm, and I eventually start understanding that they were there last year and the kids had such a good time with me and me sharing history and telling them about stuff that they not only came back the next year, they have drawings that they did of me and of the scenes of things that I told them. They brought me this big present, this package of all these drawings. And so my tiny little black Grinch heart explodes three sizes. And it's at this moment that, that I realize this is what it's about. And I'm a guy who spent pretty much his the bulk of his adult life as a professional entertainer who has never given one thought to entertaining anybody but himself. And it's a moment. And and just like the whole world like completely melts away and changes. It's like it, it went into color from yeah, black and white. Like exactly. It's like, the, you know, when she walks out of the house in The Wizard of Oz, it's exactly like that, that suddenly – I understand. And and at the same time, there's this thing in the back of my mind of, of like, who have I been all this time? But but realizing that the, the that sharing this history and really just, you know, and who cares what the stories were or anything like that? These kids were excited and they were inspired and they were engaged and the, and they were thinking about it a year later. And I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do. So while I was at the Shipwreck Museum, I I've, I've, um, upped my game. Because we only did these um, these presentations every 22 minutes, so between those times, I picked up a um, guitar that, much to the chagrin of of some of my compatriots, was missing a couple strings. But I would play it like that because, hey, this is probably how guys who found a guitar in a shipwreck would play anyway. And I picked out of 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 handful of songs that were that people would know but related to nautical themes i actually played you know come sail away by sticks okay um but the <laughs> one four string six string the, the one that was yeah well and me singing really really poorly mm-hmm. you know when you talk about me being the singer of the band um you know you have to use the term very very loosely because I can't sing to save my life, um, but uh, but I I um, my real crowd pleaser was this song from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, where Kirk Douglas is singing "Whale of a Tale." 
Let's listen to it. This is Thomas Lockyer's third and final song, Whale of a Tale by Kirk Douglas, or sung by Kirk Douglas, uh, from the 1954 film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Like he said, this is Three Song Stories. Whale of a tale, and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. Did you get people singing along? I did. <laughs> Especially I did. parents, probably. Yeah, and it, it, it was definitely, that was one of the real crowd pleasers. And, you know, that was also another moment when I realized that, dude, you've been taking yourself way too seriously for way too long. And, you know, it was a, a, that moment when I was like, you can, you know, you can just have fun doing music. It doesn't have to be about the monster suit and the image and the this and that and, and just – but – uh you know, and and museum work became really fun for me in that way, and I I I still I like to keep that that element in it, and you know again with with what I do today, um, you know I have a unique opportunity. I I run the museum in Everglades City. Everglades City has the last K through twelve public school on a single campus in the state of Florida. It's three buildings, but it is literally it's, – it's actually pre-K through 12th grade and there are less than 300 kids in the entire student body. Their, their graduating class last year was seven kids. Hmm. So you know, when I do educational outreach, it's not just fourth grade. It's every single kid in that school. So I, I, you know, I create programs and presentations that that are engaging on all levels, and we, you know, getting these kids to get interested in not just history but their history, the town's history, and and those sorts of things. So it's you know it's taking some of those life lessons that I learned way too late in life, but at the same time better late than never, and you know. Um, you know, it's like um, my sister joking, you've learned to use your powers for good instead of evil. <laughs> <laughs> so um, – and I have, you know, and, and I think that um, it's – you know, it, sometimes it's really hard for me to, to, to talk about the, uh, you know, the, the life that I used to lead and the, and the things that I, I used to do because I don't really uh, relate to that person at, the, at this point, you know, and, and you know. I could, you know, start making a, a a stack of regrets, and you know, spend the last the rest of my life doing it. But I think that the more positive spin on that is to do things that, um, you know, that counterbalance that. Hmm. Um, hey, Thomas, real fast, uh, I want to thank you for for picking that song because you kicked off a sound a song story for me this week when we were going over the show prep. Um, <laughs> in 1990, there was a VHS for Disney sing-alongs, and I must have worn that tape out as a kid, and one of the songs in it is Whale of a Tale, and this week, Mike Canary played it for me. Like, I didn't even know. Yeah, I he was, was just yeah, like, he was check just, out this song we're going to play. And I may or may not <laughs> have recited singing. Richard does not sing. <laughs> I knew, I know every word of that song. That's awesome. Yeah, except for an extraneous part that Ludwig von Duck, I think is his name, the professor, he sings at the end. I don't have a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thanks, because I forgot that I knew all of it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 
if you picked up a guitar right now, could you uh, bang that out? I could, but I'd have to like I'd have to look at what the the two or three uh, I'd have to look at what the two or three chords that I was kind of trying to play were. But it, it, you listen to the song, and there's yeah, yeah, not yeah, that yeah, much yeah. to it. It's just jink, jink, jing, 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 jing. You know, and it, but uh, but yeah, there was a guy that I, that I worked with at the Shipwreck Museum who um, played hammer dulcimer. I mean, he was a real musician. It drove him crazy that I wouldn't replace the top E string on this guitar. He's like – and he would like bring one and I'm like, I'm like no, that's OK. Thanks. But but it's it's working fine like this and it just – it drove him nuts. And he didn't really understand that that it wasn't about playing the song. The, the song was just a vehicle to get people, you know, having fun and laughing and, and you know, <laughs> so. You ready for a speed round? Sure. We're going to head in for a landing, and so we're going to put you through a speed round. Ready? Sure. Do you have a nickname that stuck over the course of your life that you'd be willing to share? I can't. I mean, um, you know, the only one that pops to mind is is – TT, which is a reference to um, my my former stage name. So. That'll work. Do you do karaoke? I've done karaoke, um, but I have more of a tendency when people try and get me to do that to, to calculate how much I got paid the last time that, that I stood on the stage and, and say if they can put that much money in a pile on the uh, – uh, um, on the table, except will... for uh, except for at the museum, you're done giving it away. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, when was the last time you purchased music that had physical form? You said you have a or you had or have a record collection. So, do you still pick up stuff? Yeah, um, it hasn't been that long since. since I I have a really hard time with with the the digital stuff, um, but a lot of that has to do. I know we're supposed to be doing a speed thing, but but that's okay. I'm, I'm, we just call it that. All right. Um, so <laughs> it's only a model. <laughs> I you know I lived through the whole thing where, um, you know I was selling X amount of of albums, and then. When suddenly the technology was out there where you could burn CDs, suddenly you had two fans that bought the physical ones and then they burned copies yeah. for all their buddies. You were on the other side of that. And they killed us. Yeah. And then when the Napster thing happened and, you know, the, the, suddenly you could you could have these, you know, files that nobody could really record, whether it was going back and forth or anything like that. And I was, I was, I literally was on the end of that where we were making a solid living. And this was also at the time when I was like, you know, um, drowning my sorrows more and more and more because we were making less and less money. So I had to like, you know, uh, uh, go that direction. But yeah, so I, for years, I refused to listen to um, digital music. I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't participate in it. Um, you know, I didn't want any of my catalog on any of the um, the the platforms or anything like that. And and finally, when I just when I let go, I let go of everything, and, and I didn't care at all about the 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 music and and 
everything like that. And every once in a while I get a, a royalty check and I'm like very pleasantly surprised by something that's happened. But um, I just don't think of it that much at, the, at this point. But uh, but yeah, I think that that I may have been at a, a, a thrift store and, and saw something that, that – um, I was like, I absolutely, and and it's ridiculous, but um, I also have a really large collection of um, exotica, you know, like Hawaiian music and mm -hmm. things like that. And I forget what the record was, but I was like, ooh, I don't have that. Hmm. And, um, you know, just moved into a new house, just, you know, started playing records again. And, and uh, so, yeah, when I... Um, when I buy physical music, it's not on on CD. It's on vinyl still. Um, <laughs> not because I'm I'm a hipster that's that's rediscovered it. It's just how I started listening to music. I get it. I get it. So, um, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter to? Um, See, I'm, I'm, I just stopped myself from from having that bragging moment. I don't know, but um, you know, uh, <laughs> Billy Corrigan from Smashing Pumpkins owns NWA, the National Wrestling Association, and they just contacted me um, about using one of my songs for one of the re wrestlers to walk onto, and I got the the um, uh, the record label to to waive the the the, the fee for it. So. Um, so I don't know what I'd walk on to. Probably I'd I'd say um, Prime Mover by Leather Nun um, would would be my walk on music. But uh, but yeah, and I've still the the um, Jim Mitchell, Reverend Jim Mitchell, the Sinister Minister, who uh, is who's a pro wrestler, is a Florida based guy, who's still really a good friend of mine. So I can't help it but seeing wrestling stuff here and there. What would your wrestler name be? Oh man. See that this is honestly speaking, this is like one of those like uncomfortable going back into the, that that I was just gonna say that. Yeah. We're we're asking you to delve back into this persona. Yeah. Thing. And 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 honestly, the um it's 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 hard for me to do that because I've I've really I've I've put so much time and energy into stepping away from playing personas that um, that I would uh, politely decline and just be like, you know what, museum man. I could do museum man and 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 be the guy that that wears the Indiana Jones hat and says that belongs in a museum. I, I was thinking of play on like. Your last name. Your last name's already Lockyer, which is an awesome last name. So I was thinking, oh, maybe like a warden type of thing that, you know, lock you up for a year, throw away the key. I don't know. <laughs> but, He's got to be a pirate. <laughs> oh, that's fair. Like some kind of nautical. Captain Lockyer. <laughs> R. If you had to guess, what would you say is the song you've listened to the most times in your life? I've listened to the most times in my life. 
um, intentionally or, or, or otherwise? No, no. I mean, I, I think that for every, this entire stretch of questions have no right answers. For, for, for everybody, <laughs> I'm sure it's happy birthday. And and I'm thinking that because that's a good answer. You know, it nobody's was, it, given us that. It was my son's that's birthday yesterday, and, and I, you know, at 11 years old, you know, as I'm getting ready to leave for work, he says, "Will you make me pancakes?" And I was like, "Yes." So I was late for work. I stopped, put everything down, made my son pancakes, and as he's eating the pancakes, he looks at me and says, "Would you sing Happy Birthday to me?" And I didn't ask him to put money on the table and explain to him how much I used to get paid to sing and everything like that. Um, I sang happy birthday. And mm-hmm. then we sang it again um, the, the, during d- dessert that night. But, yeah, I think happy birthday is the song that everybody's heard the most times. What activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? I, I would say research. You know, when – when people get interested in something and they fa- fall down all those rabbit holes through Google searches online and everything like that, I have days where I do that and I'm getting paid for it. This is what I do for a living. And I, but I find some really, really incredible stuff sometimes, you know, that, that when I, uh, you know, call up our curator of collections and say, hey – Guess what I found? The naturalization papers for, you know, when so-and-so came to Everglades for the first time. And, and um, But, yeah, it's really easy to lose track just, to, you know, going from, from one place to another in, the, in there and learning stuff, doing research. If you could magically broadcast a song to every human all at once, what song would you choose? You know, it's I'm I'm trying to think of something that that makes sense. But the, what pops into my mind is remember those old Coca Cola ads? I'd like to teach the world to sing mm-hmm. in perfect harmony. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice. So that's all you gotta say. It works <laughs> for me. Um, what would your 14 year old self, who was in France, think of who you are today? <sighs> I think that that he he'd be disappointed that 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 I was a guy that that walked away from a musical career, um, but that I was still not so bad and 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 kind of cool for an old guy. Hmm. Um, any advice you'd want to give to him? You know. <clears throat> There was a there was a period of time when, like friends of my parents would say, "Oh, I got a son who wants to be a rock star. Do you have any advice for him?" And I was like in the in the thick of it, and and um, and I would say, "Tell him to do something else." You know that that you know it's just the it's a it's an obsolete form. It's a losing proposition. It's you know the the industry turned its its head on its ears. We used to tour so that people would buy your records and you'd get royalties and it'd be really exciting and everything like that. And, and your merchandise was just something that, you know, bought a few extra cheeseburgers and um, between shows. And now at this point, um, you don't make any money from selling records. 
and everybody makes all their money off their merchandise. And, and I mean, I just I, – I look at that and, and you know, I can't imagine how, um, you know, people who are professional musicians survive mm. the, at this point. Um, so repeat the question again. Advice you'd give to your 14-year-old self. Advice I'd give to my 14-year-old self. I that that's where I was going with it is that I won't I wouldn't say don't do it um because I think that that everything that that we do is a lesson that we needed to learn and um you know and I'm a I'm a strong believer in the in the fact that most of what I you know think are missed opportunities jobs that I didn't get places I didn't get to go are dodged bullets um, and and there are definitely some in my life that that I'm like, oh, it's really lucky that that didn't happen because you know I look if if I had reached the point that I wanted to get to if I had Marilyn Manson money I'd be dead mm. I wouldn't be sitting here today um, so I and and I like sitting here and I like going home to my wife and my kid and going to my job and learning about history and sharing that stuff with with people in the community and visiting from all over the world that stuff's fun. Um, and, and, you know, um, I would have hated to have missed out on all It's that. all part of the golden thread. It is. It mm. is. Absolutely. Um, all right, Thomas, it's time for you to recommend three people that you'll share this with, who you think we might be able to get on. So, um, for sure, um, Jack Sheely, um, he's the president of the Gladesman Heritage Foundation, um, he operates uh, Trail Lakes Campground in Ochopi, um, in, the, in the middle of the Big Cypress, um, and is also the um, the frontman of the Jack Sheely Band. Mm. Um, I think they they uh, play at the Boardroom in Marco Island and some other places, but but definitely a, a, a you know kindred spirit and a, and a musician, a guy who's great storyteller, and I think would would be a, a you know. Perfect to have on the on the show, um, a gentleman who is the head of interpretation for the Big Cypress Preserve. His name is Scott Pardue, um, who is also a musician, um, but um, you know, recently relocated to this area. Used to you know uh, be at, at Harper's Ferry, but before that, it was in the Smoky Mountains National Park, and and just somebody with all these experiences and and. Um, you know th- that I think would um, would really have some some amazing stories to to share, and um, and and my boss uh, Amanda Townsend, who's the director of the Collier County Museums, who is a um, you know a music lover and and um, you know a, a fixture in the in Naples and Collier County, been Collier County government for, for 22 years at this point and I just really think has a, a, a you know, great local stories and, I, and I'd be fascinated to hear what, what her uh, stories would be. Well, do what you can to make them do it. Get us in touch with them. Any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Um, you know, just keep threading that golden thread, I guess. Cheers to that. 
For this week's Parting Tune, we're traveling back one year to episode number 234 guest, Alyssa LeMay, the comedic Broadway belting bingo calling alter ego of Andy Spaulding. Alyssa's first song was Any Song Will Do from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and a life-changing moment it and that show revives. We were elementary school age, uh, probably around fourth grade. Uh, we went to Toronto for the first time. Um, and we, my parents have always been big. Um, one, we're going to go see the arts, but we're going to see history and all that. So that was, I mean, it's a cool city. Uh, but we saw, it was the first time I saw Phantom uh, on stage. Then we went to see Beauty and the Beast had just started going around. It was just out. Saw that. Then we saw the Who's Tommy, which was awesome. Didn't get it, Didn't know it any before, but that was like so cool. Um, and then we saw Joseph and they amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but Donny Osmond was still Joseph. Right. Kind of an old Joseph, but <laughs> I mean, he was still in shape, so I mean, yeah. he was still great. Um, I remember when he comes out, because there's the big pyramid and all the kids on the on the side of the stage singing, and like he comes out, and it's just like, like he owns this whole room, and it's like one little guy, because we're up way in the balcony, and he was just, it, I don't know, it was just one of those like weird magical experiences, so that was just that first thing I'm like, I could do this. He's a normal guy. Like, because, you know, Phantom's, like, they're all in costumes, all like this. Like, here's just a normal guy singing. And it was, that was, like, the one of those definitive things that, like, oh, this is going to be, like, a job. <laughs> in case you hadn't heard, we're taking the show on the road on Saturday, September 16th at 6 p.m. We'll be on stage in the Folds Theater at the Alliance for the Arts in Fort Myers, recording Terry Tinsher's episode. He's a perennial figure in the Fort Myers art scene and a really cool guy. Go to WGCU.org slash events for more information. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern Gonzalez. Christophus is our executive producer, and our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Keep listening.